0: Hello, and welcome to episode 6.1 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm your moderator, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today I have regular panelist Sheila Woodruff and guest panelist Ford Suze. Thank you both for being on the show today. Uh, Welcome, Ford. So let's introduce ourselves uh, before we get into today's topic. Sheila, you first.
1: Sure. My name is Sheila Woodruff and my family resides in Louisville, Kentucky. Prior to moving to Louisville, I taught middle school language arts, earned a master's in English from Florida State University while teaching first-year composition there, um, and helped administer a federal after-school grant that provided academic and personal enrichment to uh, tens of thousands of kids throughout Florida. After moving, I decided to stay home with my 18-month-old daughter. Today's her 18 month birthday hey, and do some consulting work in education specifically after school programs. So my um, husband and I are actually expecting a second child in June and we just found out it's a boy. So that's new. <laughs> oh, uh, yay. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. We're, we're pretty pumped and already starting to have those conversations about how to slash whether to parent our daughter and son differently simply because of their sex gender. Um, so I, uh, I have this caveat then obviously about participating today since I've only been doing this parenting thing for like a year and a half, apart from some theoretical ideas about parenting, my own experience, being a parent, um, or sorry, being parented and what I witness as a classroom teacher, those few things I have to add. My personal experience is kind of limited, so, um, it'll be interesting to, to see how this bears out with the, <laughs> the conversation today. Ford?
2: Uh, yes, my name is Ford Suse. I live in Delhi, India, with my uh, wife and son and daughter. My daughter is ten years old. Her name is Satya, and um, my son is Rohan. And he was born here. Actually, he's only a year old. We just celebrated his birthday this past weekend. Um, and kind of like Sheila, actually, I'm I. Still, I'm kind of trying to figure out how our parenting will be different for daughter and son, and we haven't hit those pivotal teenage years yet. So, that's the big kind of mystery in my mind is how to navigate that. Like, I've dreaded that right.
0: ever since. I feel like
1: we bets are out. off at that point, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. I've I dreaded it ever since we found out we were having a girl, um, actually, because. I worry about guys. (laughs) So I was worried about guys from the time before we even had Satya. I was like, oh man, we have to deal with guys when we get to the teenage years. And so now that I have a guy, now I'm worried like, no, now I have a guy. So now I have to worry about, you know, training him up in such a way that he's going to be not a jerk. So yeah, I'm kind of, uh, I'm scared for both. I'm scared for the guys out there and uh, I'm scared for raising one. So, yeah, um I don't know. I'm a little bit pessimistic sometimes, um but so far i I feel like it's been you know parenting's not easy, but um satya is just amazing, uh, she just continues to amaze me, so uh I'm optimistic now, more so than I was when we first found out we were having a daughter, so yeah, I still feel like we're working through some of these issues too. Um, I think the cross-cultural situation living in India makes it m- more interesting. There are a lot of uh, women's issues that are coming into the forefront now, especially in the last couple of years. Um, so it's a good place to actually have some of these conversations. And uh, it's cool to see women, you know, especially, especially in, more, in, a, in a place like Delhi, getting more of a voice here. And uh, so it, it's a good place to have some of these discussions with our daughter.
0: Awesome, thanks. Uh, So as both Ford and Sheila have alluded, listeners, uh, today we're going to talk about parenting, specifically Christian feminist parenting. Uh, And since we're starting a two-part series on parenting this week, we thought first we should define some terms. So we're going to talk a little bit about what Christian feminist parenting is or should look like. Uh, here at CFP, we've said many, many times that we think both feminism and Christianity are about the flourishing of all people. So how do you two think parenting fits into this idea?
1: So like I mentioned earlier, our, our child, um, her name's Amelie, she's is still very young, so this is kind of philosophical for me more than practical, but one of the things I knew going into this um, would be important is something that my family's always called intentional parenting. That is trying to think about the choices we're making on our child's behalf, um, as well as the lessons we're t- teaching her both explicitly and implicitly, whether we're providing you know direct instruction and like sitting her down and telling her things or just modeling life. Um, I feel like for us, anyway, direct instruction is a bit easier to do intentionally. You know, you plan the things you want your child to learn. You want them to be prepared for school and for life. So there's lots of, you know, right now for us, it's counting and and you know, naming colors and reading the ABCs and art activities to develop sensory perception and um, you know to just experience the world a little bit. And you know whether you align as a parent with a student-centered or like Montessori-style education or whether you prefer adult-led activities, whether you teach your child at home or encourage their learning outside the home, you make these choices consciously to help them achieve their best, right? Like you're you're working for um, them to, to learn as much as they can so that they can be successful and, you know, be their own person um, later in life. So that's part of it for me. Um, I guess the, the Christian, the Christian aspect of it comes out in the sort of, um, you know, two part great commandment that we're given to love God. I like the messages paraphrase of this, um, love the Lord with all your passion and prayer and intelligence and energy. Um, just to think of it somewhat differently. And then basically to love everyone else, you know, that this is, this is our, our dual purpose as as people on the planet, and specifically as Christ, as Christians. Um, for us, work hard, do your best. Those are also uh, really important things in our in our household. Um, I like to add, do or do not. There is no try. Not try your best. Because you know, I'm a big nerd. <laughs> so, and then um, to use your gifts. You know, you you've been given things to figure out what they are, and then to go and use them in a way that's going to finish this. sentence fulfill God's kingdom or um, serve other people or do what it is that you do and do it for the best of your ability. Um, those kind of explicit, like I, I call them direct instruction because that's my teaching background, but, um, those explicit lessons, like I said, I feel like are easier to kind of think about now before we really get into them. Um, because you know, you want your parenting to go along those lines. Modeling gets a lot trickier. Um, it's but that's what makes the lesson stick, right? So in my former life as a teacher, students rarely got it, got the lesson during the direct instruction portion. Like you can stand up there and talk to your blue in the face, but it's not gonna do you lots and lots of good. It's not until they see the teacher practice the lesson, and then they work with other students to practice the lesson, and then they work by themselves to practice the lesson that it really starts to sink in. Um and the challenge for me I know as a parent is gonna be that modeling of life. Um and that's where the Christian feminist part of it starts to really sink in for me. Like, like I said, my ethic is to love God, then love everyone else. Um, I think we could talk a lot about the loving God part, but uh, I, I was a little more interested in the loving everyone else part because that is the bit I feel like has to be fleshed out the most as you parent people and live your life as a person. Um, to figure out how to love your neighbors is, is usually the harder of that um that That bit, so a couple of the things that I look toward in this Christian feminist parenting idea. Um, one is empathy. I want to to I always tried with my middle school kids and hope to try with my own kids to understand where people are coming from, why they might be acting the way they do. Um, this for me will include teaching my kids about systematic disenfranchisement, though I really hope I don't use that term with them like ever. Um, but that's the idea. Right? Institutional ways of oppression to not to give them a giant burden on their backs or weapon to to use against those who have a different viewpoint. I'm right because you've been oppressing people forever, but to help them understand why some people, you know, have to work a lot harder to get to the point where they're starting in life and why we need to be especially compassionate in the situations. So empathy is one of those key touchstones for me. Um to kind of go along with that, like context and nuance to understand, I don't know how I'm going to teach my kids this stuff, but this is what I'm thinking of right now. <laughs> so um, I have some ideas, but we can talk more about that later. So context and nuance, um, you know, as, a, as an adult, I found the only way to fully understand the situation or problem or injustice or whatever it is, is to search for, you know, why it's happening and, you know, the, um, the background going on behind the history um, and how different people react to it. We'll talk later in the episode about um, an article that doesn't have very much nuance and why that's problematic and why referring to a group of people as doing or being all the same thing is, is wrong. Um, So that's another um, key piece for me. And then the other couple are compassion Um, to teach my kids to be compassionate to others all the time Um, and to assume the best in people, even though I think that's me being a bit idealistic, but to assume that folks are are trying the best they can and to encourage that in them. And then finally, to seek the face of God in others. Um, So I I took one of those high school mission trips that so many young Christians take. I actually uh, went to India and traveled with a group of kids for like three weeks throughout the country Um, visiting different cities and meeting different people along the way. And in the midst of that, one of the leaders challenged us to see the face of God and the people we were meeting and interacting with, um, which did not allow us to pity the people we saw or to say how amazing or how awful that we have so much more than they do or that um, they're happy with so much less, you know, these other first worldy youth things that you tend to think on trips like these. Instead we spent our time seeking ways that God has created each of us and God's Image um, has made us unique and searching for and you know, appreciating those qualities and those around us. And that played a powerful role in the trip um, and kind of haunts me still. You know, every time I get yelled about a driver on the road, this reminder that we're all created in God's image, we're all, you know, His people, and um, remembering that, trying to keep that in the forefront is going to be a challenge for me to model, but something I think is very important important to my Christian. Um, parenting style. So I think I've rambled a bit enough. So I'll let Ford you talk a little bit if you'd like about that.
2: Okay. Um, yeah, I think as a uh, as a feminist, I one of the formative experiences for me was uh, not not really relating to women, but relating to other cultures when I was in. Uh, just coming into college, I helped out at a church in Miami, and it was a primarily Haitian population. We weren't in uh, Little Haiti, but we were in the northwest section of Miami, and it was uh, this small Christian Missionary Alliance church was there, and it was almost entirely uh, people by Haitians. And so there's this one uh, guy that I kind of hung out with. His name was Victor, and he really kind of Busted my stereotypes about dark-skinned Americans. You know, he, he has a Haitian background, but uh, he could he could speak uh, Creole. But he, you know, his the warping wolf of his life was in English. He was, but he was a nerd. Like he didn't listen to rap. He listened to rock. And so there was, and we played video games together. And so he just broke all these stereotypes that were kind of latent in my mind. Um, some of which I probably didn't realize. I thought consciously, you know. So that whole experience. Now he's he's uh, he's in LA now. He he's a freelance um, 3D model model maker for toy companies like Hasbro and stuff like that. And he just does phenomenal work. He's just an awesome artist. And so that experience was really good for me because it just it made me realize. Yeah, I mean, you can be from anywhere. You can. But you might have a different dream. You might have a dream that's different from whatever um, cultural or subcultural conditioning that we tend to get. So I think how that's probably rather unconsciously, I don't think I've necessarily thought it out um, as a philosophy, but with Satya, parenting her, not assuming that because she's a girl she's going to want to do such and such, not necessarily thinking that she's going to want Barbies or whatever, like that our culture says that, uh, girls should like. So yeah, she's just taken into certain things that I never really, really would have thought she would get into. Um, like recently we started playing this online video game, league of legends, which I can't really necessarily speak, speak well of everything that that game does. Um, you want to talk about sexism in video games. That's definitely, it, it just seems to pervade video games, uh, even till today. Um, so there's some discussions we're going to definitely have to have about some of that, the way that some of the women are portrayed in the game. Um, but allow playing like that game with her has been actually really uh, a fun way for us to interact. And that's not one I ever really expected to be doing with my daughter. And, uh, and now we're getting into this space. We, I only let her play when I'm on with her because, um, yeah, web, uh, well, you know how web interaction is. It's terrible on YouTube and and that kind of thing. But it's even worse, I think, in video games, just the, how uh, flame war-like people can be. And then you add in the fact that uh, guys can be pretty ignorant and say things online. So that's uh, something to definitely consider as I go on. But just not letting uh, whatever subcultural elements determine how Satya is going to be, you know, that I think, uh, kind of like she said that everyone is an individual and, and, uh, to let her be you, her own person and not necessarily let some sort of, uh, previous idea of what it means to be a woman define her. um, and she's just really cool. I just love hanging out with her. She's just her perspective on things is is so uh, refreshing, actually. So, um, and then I think as far as being a Christian, not necessarily always siding with my child. I think that's one thing I learned when I was teaching. I taught for uh, a stint, and I've, I've taught violin lessons and things like that over the years, uh, and. One of the things I, I noticed when I was teaching at a public high school was I would have parents who either with me or with someone or another teacher would assume that they would always go to bat for their kid, even though even if their kid was purposefully manipulating them or the situation, you know, wasn't doing their homework, wasn't showing up to class, and the parent would just always go to bat for the kid and that doesn't help the kid you know so it doesn't help the kid and it doesn't help the situation it's not just and so i feel like uh as a christian trying to find the third path you know you, you want to you want to get the best information you, you don't want to you want to give your kid the benefit of the doubt but sometimes even children can do that original sin thing where they just purposely willfully doing do something that is malevolent within their sphere of influence. You know, it may not, it may not be that big, big of a deal overall, but within the limited amount of power that they have, they are, they are pushing people. And so just not assuming that because she's my daughter that she's incapable of doing some of those things. And, and so really trying to uh, uh, yeah, lovingly navigate that and Institute discipline in a way that doesn't, uh, yeah, doesn't cause her harm, but at the same time doesn't leave her open to being a force of evil. You know, because I, I had some students or uh, interacted with students back at at high school that were just they were being enabled to be evil. It's just what it was. So I think uh, a Christian context gives me a give you a uh, a way to kind of leave that open you know that that sin still exists and yeah it's a real thing and it's not just because it may not be culturally cool to talk about um, I see it in my own life all the time and I see how it destroys me and i don't I don't want that to, to destroy my daughter so.
1: I agree I think that's a really good that's a really good point not something I thought of um in terms of this discussion but yeah as a teacher I saw that too like I said I taught middle school I taught sixth seventh and eighth grade and fifth grade at one point too um and even in and I I stayed with my kids from year to year so I had them as sixth graders we moved up together I taught them as seventh graders and I had um this one group of girls who were like fabulous kids in their own right and they were really smart and they love to talk about books. And I was the English teacher. So of course I'm like beside myself. I think they're wonderful. Um, and then we started to hear some reports of bullying in some of their other classes. And, you know, that as a teacher, I'm thinking, well, this can't, this can't be right. I can only imagine how their parents are, you know, reacting. Cause I know that at least a couple of them were coming from, um, say strong Christian homes. You know, I knew they went to church regularly. We talked about, that sort of thing with their parents when they would bring it up. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it absolutely can happen to, to anyone to, you know, to the, the kids that you think are the best as well as, you know, the kids that you expect that from sadly and to, to view it as a parent to teach them. Um, I mean, obviously by sixth grade, like you've kind of learned the ins and outs, the rights and the wrongs of how to treat other people. Um, And to to help them be aware of what they're doing and how it's making others feel is a real struggle, I feel like, especially as you get older and more responsible for those actions.
2: Yeah, definitely. Actually, I did teach at a a private Christian school, Episcopal school, one, uh, one year, taught fourth graders. and. Fourth grade is really kind of magical year. I feel like because the kids haven't quite gotten into the angstiness that starts to hit somewhere around sixth or seventh grade. Um, I think it's definitely. People say teaching is a calling. I believe that. I, I believe that middle school teaching is like the ultimate calling. So I have <laughs> utmost respect for you. Um, high school was hard enough for me, but I don't know. There's there's just that one age where I just I couldn't (laughs) I couldn't relate with these kids so but fourth grade was kind of a magic year um and but even then I started to see like these little groups of girls would get together and they would just be so they could be so mean to one another and you know oust one another get and we, we see that over here actually there's a cultural thing that they say um, and this happens with boys too. It's more often with girls, and they call it it's cuti mit, miti. And cuti means sour, and miti means sweet. So if you're if you're miti, then you're you're getting along and everything's fine. You're best friends, you know. But if you're cuti, that means it's sour. So uh, we are cutti. I, I am kutti with him, so they, they won't talk to each other. So it's so it's interesting to see these kind of these same things happening. Um, in back home in America, in a private Christian school, and then over here in India, in an international school with mainly Indians, with these these girls, which I mean, Sati would come home and really be sad because she was some girl was cutty with her, said that oh, I'm not talking to you now. So yeah, so it yeah, it, the human beings. I mean, we have this capacity for being uh, petty and mean to one another. So you know, I think that's one of the things where the the Christian part of our parenting comes in, um, not assuming, and yeah, giving giving my daughter too the benefit of the doubt that I don't always do a great job of this, but you know, it if it it does mean the world to her sometimes, and sometimes you just have to really hear her out, and it, it may not seem like that big of a deal on the face of it, when you get down a little deeper, it's like, oh yeah, there's some actually, I mean, that was seriously hurt her what that person said, so. Um, realizing that these aren't just petty disputes sometimes.
0: Thanks, guys. Uh, Those are both really great responses. Um, I love seeing the commonality in what both of you said. I like that you're both talking about nuance and gray area, and I like that you're both talking about treating your children as individual humans. Uh, I, th- I think that maybe not just parents, but kind of the adult world in general um, often sees children just as, as children, as this sort of lumped-in group of people uh, that they have a tendency to, to reduce and talk down to. And I think it's great that you're both making an effort as parents not to do that. Um, so let's move on a little bit. We've talked mostly theoretically, uh, thus far about what Christian feminist parenting is or should look like. Uh, let's get a little bit more practical if we can. Um, if our biggest, uh, sort of Tenant. of this podcast is uh, about the flourishing of all people. Our second biggest tenant is probably that the personal is political, Uh, this idea that everyday choices um, are important because they encapsulate how we express our political beliefs. So to that end, can the two of you give me a couple of specific examples of the kinds of parenting choices you've made or would like to make that you see as explicitly Christian feminist choices?
1: Sure. Um, well, I, I have to start, even though that's pretty embarrassing. Um, the first thing I thought when we found out we were having a girl with our first child was there is not going to be pink in this house. There are not going to be any of those little hair bow things that you put on their heads if she doesn't have any hair. And we are not doing princesses. Like these in order were the important things to me. <laughs> and- yeah,
2: I, I can kind of, I resonated with that. <laughs>
1: And I mean, it's ridiculous, but this is, you know, at some level, like you have to, I, I felt like there had to be this upfront identification of my child as a person, not necessarily as a girl person, you know? And so, um, darn it. We bought the, like, judge me by my size. Do you Yoda onesie at Disney? Because that was important to me. Um, ridiculous. Yes, but it is unfortunately, uh, or maybe fortunately, as I'm finding my husband really liked pink and he thought the hair bows were cute. And he thought that every girl should have princesses in her life. Um, And so we had some interesting conversations about that. And um, as I've found, when people know you're having a girl, they're going to buy you pink. And they're going to buy you hair bows. And they're going to buy you stuff with princesses on them. And so, um, so far, again, we're at 18 months here. I'm I'm finding for us that that stuff really doesn't matter. Surprise. The, The superficial is still fairly superficial. Um, And yes, Amelie likes to flip through her Disney princess board book in which every story ends with the princess happily married at like 16 or, you know, whatever young age they are. Um, But we read all of her other books 10 to 1 and usually she chooses, um, you know, we have babar and his art museum and we have um like six abc uh or six or ten i don't know i have to put them away because we have so many that they get confusing um and she knows all of her animal noises and these things that have become much more important to her than looking at the disney princesses um i've also found that popular right you know this is from my own growing up popular culture is going to happen it's it's part of um society, it's part of what you're going to engage in, whether you prefer it or not as a parent. Um, and it's usually brought on by well-intentioned friends and relatives who want your child to have a normal childhood, um, even if you want your child to reenact Star Wars battles in the backyard, you know, as I keep alluding to. So like, um, like much of my Christian walk, I think explaining things to my daughter, and I'm hoping that, you know, um, my son will be the same way as as they become old enough to understand things. um, For example, talking about why getting married at 16 might not be the best idea or why waiting for a prince can be a disappointing experience that those conversations, um, Trump trying to hide her from them in the first place. So, (laughs) To to be kind of coy, if, you know, if only Aurora's parents had taught her what a spindle was and why it was dangerous, maybe she would have been a little less curious, a little more diligent in avoiding them and would have prevented that whole sleeping beauty debacle in the first place. Right. (laughs) um, Knowledge is power. And Francis Bacon said that for a reason. So for me, it's more important to understand why and help my kids understand why certain things get popular, to learn when and why to engage with a popular thing, whether it's a, a game or a toy or a show or a type of music, and to think critically about what your choices say about you, um, and then finally how they further those two main rules, to love God and to love everybody else.
0: Uh, awesome. I, I like that you're willing to, uh, to sort of course correct and, and question yourself and, and think about why you're making the choices you're making, um, both as a parent And as a person. I think that's great. Uh, Ford, how about you? Can you give us an example of a Christian feminist parenting choice?
2: Yeah, I think um, there was an article that came out earlier this year. It was a blog post, I believe, uh, in which a much more conservative mother uh, was talking about how she was sick of selfies showing up on Facebook with girls
0: We talked about that on a previous episode of this show. Oh,
2: really? Okay. I'm sorry. I should have... No, it's cool.
0: Um, (laughs) Our our listeners will remember that discussion, but I do not expect you to listen to our entire back catalog.
2: Um, Well, yeah, I should probably go back and visit. I'd be curious um, to hear the discussion on that one. Yeah, that, that post, I think, rightfully enraged a lot of people. And I thought around that same time, I don't know if it was a response to that one. I, I think we actually discussed this other post there was a there was a guy, maybe we on Facebook, there was a father who talked about parenting his son and he saw the way his son was starting he said, When I noticed that my son is starting to look at women less from the childlike, oh, there's there's a mommy figure to objectifying them. Um, he's going to have this discussion with with him where it's it's not cool to uh, treat treat a woman like just an object, and I thought it was really well argued kind of point. Um, so in in between those two things, I think the the way that woman just backloaded the mother backloaded all the blame onto. Those girls, you know, and like my son can't unsee what he's seen, and you know you're responsible for their purity and all this stuff. Um, so I think uh, one of the things is just to have discussions with with my daughter about you know who's defining what. I think the one thing that that I do call in question some of that backlash was uh, who's defining what looks sexy about the way those girls are taking their selfies, like, is is not some of that a patriarchal kind of idea? Like, there's some corporative, st- corporate stooge up there picking what pictures is going to, you know, like, Angelina ne- Jolie needs to put her lips this way in order to be sexy. Like, well, who made that, who wrote that down in stone? You know, I mean, if we look back across the history of sexiness in the world, I mean, what was sexy in 1500 is not... Sexy in 2000. Why? Why are we? Why are we still saying that certain cultural norms are sexy? So, having some of those kind of discussions, I think, as a family, um, something we want to do as we go along, and even as we interact with video games. That's (laughs) I'm starting to see that uh, this can actually be, you know, kind of like Sheila was saying, like not necessarily just putting a a ban on on cultural entertainment or pop but examining it not just taking it and saying okay well this is okay that this this uh, female pirate character in this game dresses in such a way that makes no sense in a battle circumstance like why is she dressed like this and the dude has this freaking full set of armor like why you know so asking those kind of questions Like, what is really the reason why she's being portrayed in such a way um and So, having the, I think some of those discussions is some things I want to do, um but yeah, kind of like Sheila, in a way, I feel uh like some of this is still theoretical, we haven't dove in yet and and now is the time it's now really is the time, so it is good that this episode is happening, so because you don't want to wait till thirteen to deal with it, and such is knocking on the door of that so it's, it's about time to dive into some of this and, and start examining the, uh, the you know the consumption that we have the, the entertainment that we take in and, and say you know okay, well, what's dictating this Who's what is the message here what is this saying about women um, is this just portraying woman as an object or a means to an end so um, some of those things I think especially in inter- entertainment because in a way it's kind of my business, so uh, we want to be real responsible in the way that we consume it as well.
1: And I don't know if you um, feel the same way about this, Ford or Victoria, but for me, that's that's part of um, the Christianity part of this too. Is um, being a Christian? You know, I was raised to be in the world, not of the world. Right? This is kind of the idea. Although I don't think my parents ever used that terminology. That was kind of the idea. My folks always always pushed me to be, um, to be different. Um, that turned into me being, you know, like nerdy weirdo kid who would rather read my dystopic science fiction, um, than play princess Barbies or what have you. But, um, the, the idea of like Christians having to remove themselves, which you referred kind of referring to in this, this article, I think this mom was also like explicitly overtly Christian about it. And this is, as you refer for your, as she referred to purity and whatnot, that's certainly part of the conservative Christian culture. Um, You know, but the, the idea that you can't participate in certain cultural forms because they're, they're of the world. I have issues with like, how then can you participate in conversations? How then can you relate to other people if you don't understand what they're doing? Not that you accept all of those things wholesale or, or everything that like, world culture, um, is going to teach children or, or even adults, um, but that you teach them to interact with those things critically from both, a, for me, it's a both a feminist and a Christian perspective. Um, I'm thinking specifically, right? So let's bring a real example to it. I worked with a number of kids in youth group who never read Harry Potter because they weren't allowed to. And I thought this was awfully ridiculous. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> right?
0: So, Especially I, I, when you get to the end of book seven, right? Because Harry's wow. basically yeah. Jesus. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah, and Dumbledore basically God. Like, I mean, come on. I, I cannot – when we finally finished it, because my daughter – yeah, we, we kind of finally turned the page. And, and Melissa was like, this is stupid. We just need to let her read it. And so she voraciously read them, all of them, in six months. And we, uh, we watched all the movies, and I'm like, what is the controversy
1: here? Like, <laughs>
2: right. I don't get it at all.
1: Yeah, It's about magic. Therefore it's bad. And it, when you define the world so clearly for other people, they don't ever get the opportunity to then define things for themselves. And this is where we end up with these like gross polarizations across all sorts of topics and, you know, awful misunderstandings. And, um, I, 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 I just am kind of a, uh, taken aback by by folks who try so hard to withhold these things from their kids because their kids are going to get there eventually, you know, and then they're not only reading the stuff or watching it or what have you, they're rebelling and you're not able to have those conversations because they can't tell you things. So now you're, yeah, it gets really complicated, but that's um, one of those things as a Christian, like, yes, my daughter and I will certainly have conversations about the commodification of girlhood, but also we're going to talk about what it means to be you know, different in a Christian way too and still be loving to other people when they don't agree with you about things.
2: Right, yeah. And I think that's really the way you put it earlier, context and nuance. You know, the, the, the nuance is lost, like in that woman's blog post. She, she was just, she had no, there was no context, context or nuance to it. And I think so often as conservative Christians like that, that way, that you know, even I was brought up to some degree. There's so much context and nuance lost in these uh, when these issues come up, and so yeah, I think yeah, I really like that, you know, because once you have the context and nuance of Harry Potter, you realize oh, <laughs> um, yeah, there's all of this rebuttal and all this hand wringing is really dumb. <laughs>
0: Okay, um for Sheila has already touched on this a bit, but um in terms of discussing parenting choices, are there any choices that you planned to make or did make um that you decided against or abandoned as a parent?
2: Okay. Um well, I'm not sure nothing's really coming to mind. Um, I think probably my wife and I had notion yeah we've prob- we were probably in the same boat as Sheila about not having bows and things like that um and then but yeah, at a certain point pink just became a thing uh satya so definitely kind of went in that princess mode for a while, and so. We didn't really, and I don't think it's one thing that we actively said, hey, let's let her be a princess. We probably pushed back against that, but Satya kind of went into that mode for a while. and So, yeah, I think it's just leaving your your child with room to experiment with certain things that maybe is not quite up your alley, or you think, oh, I, I totally am <laughs> not on board with this, but... Um, it's not really, it's not destructive. You know, I think a lot of Christians with Halloween, it's another one of those things. Like, as a kid, we we did Harvest Festival or whatever at our Christian school, and my dad was anti-Halloween to the core. And Melissa was raised in a, in a little more lenient environment when it came to that. So she didn't have an issue with Halloween, so when it came to Halloween, it's like, okay, yeah, so whatever. I mean, at a certain point, I think it, it just, it's it's almost like you, I feel like evangelical Christians sometimes just pick battles that aren't worth fighting. And, um, so
0: that,
1: that's funny. My family had that same conversation this year (laughs) about Halloween or not to Halloween or to not Halloween.
2: And so in some ways, like, I mean, I think there are a lot of things behind it that I, I don't really like. Um, but living in, in a place like India, that we have have had these kind of conversations, um, then they, uh, that's that's an area that's kind of we gone back and forth with. Um, less about my daughter's gender identity, but her identity as a as a uh, child of Christians, you know, it, it's something I've you know we want we want her to kind of come to her decisions on, and uh, uh, you know, when it comes to spiritual life, I feel like that's one of the ways we can kind of we kind of sometimes create these problems later on, like you said, rather than letting letting our children come to these conclusions on their own, we, we kind of force them into a later rebellion because uh, we don't let them see the context and the nuance behind certain questions. And so when they get them from another source, they're like, oh, well, this source is more trustworthy than my parents were. Um, so when it became a real issue when we were sending her to international school because they would open up with the Gayatri Mantra which is kind of a real quintessential element of Indian life in North India and in Hindu life and when you when you listen when you read out what is being said in this thing and they're supposed to pray along with it it's like Om Shanti Bua it's, it's I mean you hear it everywhere in here uh, so as an evangelical Christian it made me feel awkward it made my daughter feel awkward so, so what do you do with that do you just pray something else while they're praying it like is it possible when you're saying ohm, you know peace love to be focusing on uh, Jesus during that time like is it is it a dividing line worth standing up for no I'm going to stand here and I'm standing up for Jesus uh, and you know but you go back and I think Christians really just don't look at the context and nuance in the Bible. Uh, there's that situation in the Old Testament with Naaman the Syrian. He gets healed when he comes down to the prophet, and he asks him. He says, "Hey, I'm getting ready to go back to my home uh, land, where I will be bowing down to this these." gods that I don't even actually believe in anymore but if I don't do it, I'll get my head cut off or whatever so can I do it in in my brain be praying to God and I mean, I, I always get it mixed up, I can't remember if it's Elijah or Elisha in that situation, but the prophet says yeah, go be blessed or whatever and this is, a, this is either one, it was Elijah or Elisha, Th- those dudes were no nonsense, I mean they <laughs> if, if they had an issue with it, they would have said it Right. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot more nuance than we give people credit for. And so when we come to a situation like a cultural situation like India, uh, evangelicals have just been notoriously ethnocentric when it comes to the way Indians worship. And uh, there's n- – give Hinduism no leeway at all. And Hinduism is a religious belief system that is not a system. It's, I mean, it's, it's anything – you can find in the history of Hinduism anything you possibly can imagine. You can find monotheism, you can find uh, polytheism, monism, pantheism, non-dualism, dualism. dualism, Every single sort of theological construct exists within Hinduism. And so you've got all these Christians saying you can't, you know, you've got to come out from this cultural background and become a Christian. Um, That's a real debate that's raging right now. I'm kind of getting off topic, but so that's something that we had to kind of navigate and we have given ground on that uh now that we're here. I mean, if we weren't here, this is a conversation we never would have even had. So does my daughter, you know, my daughter act in the Hindu play, you know, does she is she can she sit there and talk about the the legacy of Ram, you know, is that a cool um yeah, I feel like it is because I feel like ignoring it and you know, does that mean I take everything that Ramayan says? Uh, no, <laughs> I certainly don't. You um, want to talk about a patriarchal treatise? There's a pretty good example. The way that uh, Sita is treated in a book is reprehensible, and and there are even Hindus today who will who call some of those uh, versions of the Ramayan into question. So, yeah, I mean, but if we don't engage with it, then then you don't get to you don't get to actually understand where, where yeah, the other context and the nuance.
1: So. So you were talking about um, evangelical Christians kind of being ethnocentric and um, I'm, I'm guessing there's some demanding quality in there as well.
2: In, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in what way?
1: In, in you know, demanding that people either meet their terms or, you know, work with them on things that they disagree with.
2: Definitely. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah I, I was kind of opened up to a new term um, that I wanted to throw out to you guys. I am on a Facebook group with some really amazing women in Tallahassee, and it's a collection of moms from all sorts of different backgrounds, some religious, some not, some Christian, a lot not, um, but who like to talk about spirituality and religion. And um, one of them said that, her, she was concerned that her kid was being bullied. She used the, the term Christian bullying um, because of things that Christian kids had said to her child who doesn't go to church um, or any kind of, you know, place of worship. Um, and, you know, things like, uh, you know, if you don't go to church, you're going to hell. If you don't believe in Jesus, then, you know, you're going to, again, go to hell or you're not a good person. Um, and I I was kind of floored by that. I guess I'd never really thought about evangelism from that exact perspective, from that opposite perspective. i thought about it. That from interesting. Cultural perspective, yeah, but not within you know the little town slash city of Tallahassee, Florida. Um, and so the question, my internal question, came up: Well, how do you teach your kids? about these lessons, which seem contradictory, one of which is love everyone, right? And try to understand them. And the other, which is share your faith, right? Like go and make disciples. How do you do, how do you bring both those things and still be respectful um, of other people? So I was kind of curious if, you know, you see that played out at all in a very different way um, while you guys are there in India or how you're going to talk with your kids about that
2: yeah definitely. I think you know as Christians there is this uh, there is this peer pressure to evangelize and i don 't think it 's constructive at all i, I just i 've just written it off entirely because I think you know not everyone is a salesman, and I think we have repitched evangelism in the terms of being a salesman we 've taken paul 's model. And we've said, you've got to be like Paul. Not, I mean, how many people are like Paul? How many people are <laughs> like that guy? Like that right. guy, he was an enterprising, I'm sorry, he was kind of an enterprising jerk. Like his, his personality is just very like in your face. And it was what God used at that time. The dude was awesome. I mean, uh, but he's kind of like one in a million. And there are other stories in the New Testament that I think can be better examples for the rest of us. Barnabas is a great example, I think. I think Philip is an awesome example. He, he shares his face with this, with, with this Ethiopian in a very odd circumstance. The Ethiopian happens to be reading scripture. You know. So like, you want to talk about divine appointment. Philip doesn't get credit for that, you know. Like it's just, it's just like, hey, this happened, and then Philip disappears and trans and goes so- and, and appears somewhere else again. That's nothing Philip did there. And then the next time you meet Philip, it's twenty years later, and he has a wife and kids in Antioch or, or, or wherever he settled down. So he lived a normal family life, and the Bible doesn't talk about it. And I think that that's interesting because, you know, we, we focus on all the high points of the Bible a lot. But I think the Bible is meant to be mined for the nuance you know stuff like that where there are people doing very kind of mundane things, and that mundane thing is the work of god um so and I think part of the problem with with a cross cultural situation or even even trying to evangelize like oh you know christians do with hindus oh these hindus you know they're doing this for cultural power you know they know that if people believe in reincarnation then they're not going to uh worry to fight for themselves in this life because they'll always you know so it's a great tool of cultural power and historically that has happened but atheists can say the same thing about christians um oh well you know look what the church has done it's it's uh it says that interpretation is only up to a few. Look how, you know, look at the Dark Ages, look how the church kept people in in the dark, and look how the church punished sexual iniquity in ways that we won't even discuss. Like, so, I mean, you can use, you can use this sort of cherry-picked example of, of uh, things that religions have done and uh, as... as as an unfair straw man or a part for the whole fallacy. So Christians do that, I feel like, a lot over here. And so I think it it does end up becoming a bullying thing. Like you start picking on a culture or or a certain behavior that a, a group of people may have, and then you start leveraging that as a means to get them into the into, you know, come on board with us. And, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think it's constructive, and I think it's, uh, I like that word, I think bullying. I've seen it happen when I was teaching in school, when I was part, you know, helping out with the FCA or whatever. and uh, this one, There's this one story with this one kid. He was, he kept saying that he was being persecuted um, for Jesus, and I was around the kid enough to realize, and his mom babied him so much. This kind of comes back to what I was talking about earlier with uh, not always... Assuming that your child is righteous because they're ch- your child, she was very vocal, conservative christian but and her son had a, was, actually had some special needs um, but he, after being with him a long time, uh, I realized that he was utilizing both his special needs and his Christianity as ways to get out of trouble like he would He would instigate fights with people and annoy them. <laughs> And then he would hide behind the fact that he was a Christian and that he had, you know, certain special needs. Uh, and I could see it. I mean, I could just see it happening. That he was saying, you know, it's because of Jesus that you're you're picking on me. No, it's because you're really being annoying and you were getting in that person's face, like literally getting in people's faces, like putting his hands in people's faces, and then later on when when some kid without <laughs> scruples you know, throws him up against the locker, it's because he was loving Jesus. No, that was not it. It It's because you were being annoying.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've seen that too. Okay, uh, great comments, guys, but we need to switch gears uh, before we're out of time. Uh, Earlier this week, in preparation for this episode, I posted a... Um, a question on our Facebook page asked our listeners um, if they had any parenting-related topics that they'd like us to discuss. And my friend Beth linked an article by Louis Marcos, who is a professor of English at Houston Baptist University. And Marcos' article is entitled, Why Homeschool Girls Are Feminism's Worst Nightmare. Um, so I'd, I'd like to talk about this article a bit since we've been asked to Um, What are your thoughts on Marcos's piece or on the relationship between Christian homeschooling uh, as a parenting choice and feminism more broadly?
1: Um, Well, I'll say first that I think the topic of homeschooling itself is so interesting and difficult. It really could be. I don't know, maybe should be. Maybe we think about that for later in the episode list, but um, should be given its own episode. There's so many reasons behind choosing to homeschool and studies for and against it and supporting it and not. Um successes and failures, it's a bit impossible to cramp that discussion into like, you know, what we're trying to make an hour ish long podcast. <laughs> but um to respond, I guess first I, I need to position myself in the conversation. Like I've mentioned a few times here, um, I'm a former public school teacher, and Ford, thank you for the kudos for teaching middle school. But I had to give it up before I had children. I, that was one of my caveats as a as a teacher. There was just no way I would have enough patience to have 100 kids a day and then come home to my own children. So that was right. Uh, yeah,
2: just you're a saint just being able to do it without. <laughs> children. I don't understand how people do it with children. It's just amazing to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, man. I teach college, so I don't have to deal with that stuff. So good good on you, Sheila.
1: Okay.
2: Classroom and, and management is the hardest thing in the planet Earth. <laughs> I'm just convinced.
1: I'll tell you, the only thing I had to remember at all times, which is hard enough, hard to do, but as long as you remember that they like quite literally have lost their minds in middle school, you can cope with just about anything. You just remind yourself on an hourly, minutely basis that these are hormones and they will go away and they will come back and you don't know when and it's going to be okay. Um, I, I love middle school kids. I still do. I still work with them with youth groups when I have a chance, but that's anyway, not here and there. Today. But I'm a public school teacher. So all this about homeschooling, you know, I have a deep belief still in the power of universal education. Um, I have a fairly close up knowledge of the system's drawbacks and benefits, or at least of two of the, you know, 50 plus systems in the country since every state has its own um, system. And issues. Um, in addition to that, barring any major unforeseen events in our lives, my family's lives, I don't imagine that I will homeschool my kids past the age of two or maybe three. And I do think those early years are homeschooling. Um, you know, more and more research is coming out to show that children, I mean, we all, we know that children intuitively, we know that they, they just develop leaps and bounds those first few years. But um, the research is, is is finally bearing that out in, um, you know, a school, uh, situation, early childhood education situations. And so, um, having said all that, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not really sure where to even begin with, uh, Marcos's article, uh, I, I thought when I first started reading it, I thought for sure it was some sort of like Swifty and exercise and sarcasm and like sardonic wit. And then, then when no mention was made of like eating baby feminists at any point, or, you know, like Lizzie Bennett going all a uh, zombie killer on the feminists. I, I just got angry. Um, so I, I don't know that I can speak really coherently toward it right now. Um, Victoria, are you going to talk a little bit about the response that you shared with me earlier today?
0: Sure, I, I can do that. But um, okay. before I do, can you um, do a little summarizing for us? Tell us yeah. um, Marcos' main argument.
1: So um, so the main argument in this piece, which again is called um, Why Homeschooled Girls Are feminine, Feminism's Worst Nightmare, his, his main point is that... Um, the, the homeschool girls, a phrase he uses over and over again in the short article, um, are D- different.
0: Despite the fact that he is teaching college-age women who are over the age of 18.
1: Yeah, yeah, despite that. Um, he, he's, he's trying to say that these um, – Homeschool women, and we can assume Christian, probably assume conservative Christian homeschooled women, um, are basically better than everybody else. And especially non homeschooled women, um, because they act like Jane Austen characters, that's more or less his, his main point, And that all women should act this way, um, when they come to college and in their lives in general. And I had to do a little bit of digging, not, digging, but I had to do a little bit of of background research because I didn't know what the JBMW, um, journal was. I'm, I'm I'm assuming it's the journal of biblical manhood and womanhood. Is that accurate?
0: Uh, that sounds right.
1: Okay. It was posted on the the only
0: thing that, that I could find. Yeah.
1: Okay. It was posted on the council for biblical manhood and womanhood. So I just kind of made up the journal part, but, um, but yeah, this, this is his main point. Um, basically that like feminists are these sort of aggressive, evil people who just want to be treated like everyone else in a bad way. And that homeschooled girls, to use his phrase, um, understand that they're part of something more and that they appreciate their femininity and the feminine qualities that make them special and know how to wield them. Um, which seemed like a really odd argument to me talking about, you know, when to use your wit, your razor wit and, and, and whatnot. So, um, I guess I can talk real briefly a couple of the, the particular issues I had mentioned girls. Um, I'm guessing he probably does have some younger women, um, due to the fact that I've known in my own life, a fair number of homeschooled people who started college earlier than 18. Um, but I would think also that quite a few of them are, um, legally women and, you know, in general should be referred to as such. Um, a friend of mine posted, uh, this week, I think an an article on her own blog about this. She has been experiencing some of this academic, um, sexism and, um, being referred to as a girl and her husband also teaches at this university and, you know, hasn't ever had to address anybody calling him a boy at work. And so these these sort of disparities that go on, um, it was really appalling to see it perpetuated in this way in an actual journal article. Um, so that was one thing I wanted to bring up. And then um, I, I just wanted to point out, you know, if y'all want to elucidate more, please feel free. One of the things is, I just saw is really wrong in this article and maybe is my disagreement with the whole idea of physical manhood and womanhood in general. I don't know enough about it to know if that's what I'm arguing against. Um, but this quote from the article that feminism systematically privileges masculine initiative, reason, logic, analysis, compartmentalization and competition over feminine response, emotion, intuition, synthesis, holism and nurture. Um, so he identifies these qualities as masculine or feminine because, um, at some point um, in Western culture that was decided, I guess, cause I don't remember reading that stuff in the Bible. Like man is logical and <laughs> woman is emotional, like, uh, and not, not in so blanket ter- such blanket terms. So that was one of my issues, Um, and I just wanted to bring to that point. So my family did not operate in this way in any way, shape or form as I grew up. Um, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but, um, my, my parents somewhat consciously and somewhat because that's just who they were really didn't abide by those sort of gendered roles or qualities, what have you. at all. So, I got a lot of the nurturing what I saw as nurturing and um let's see what are some of these other words um intuition from my dad and a lot of the logic and reason in the family came from my mom. Not that my dad wasn't capable of logic and reason. He's a really smart guy and he was really good at putting together an argument if that was what it called for. But he was also good at identifying with people's feelings and being empathetic and sympathetic and, you know, putting interesting ideas together. One of the things that Marcos talks about is um, homeschooled girls are very good about making connections across disciplines. And I was like, really? Nobody else can do this? Nobody has this potential because (laughs) – I learned that from my dad. <laughs> so, um, it was just bizarre to me. And I wanted to suggest that maybe these aren't so much masculine or feminine qualities as they are differences in personality. Um, we did Myers Briggs and my family, uh, to, you know, kind of sort out your personality traits because that made more sense in our context to look at, you know, whether you were extroverted, introverted, you were thinking or sensing, I'm getting them mixed up, um, intuitive or sensing or, Uh, feeling or you know how how you saw the world how you interpreted the world um and interacted with the world that was more important than whether those things were masculine or feminine in my household so I was curious what y'all had to say about that (laughs) or anything else because apart from that I just want to yell a lot right now
2: yeah my the sentence that I took away from it was um she said I said earlier that they are like Jane Austen. I guess he's referring to you, homeschool girls. I said earlier that they are like Jane Austen characters, but they are also like Portia from The Merchant of Venice. They have the brains and the skill to don the robes of the lawyer, but their motivation for doing so is not to win a debate or to air their bitterness in public or to settle old scores. It is rather to defend those they love. In an age that is in great need of the true feminine voice, not one marred and twisted by the politics of identity and victimization. Homeschool girls are to borrow a line from Portia, like the gentle rain from heaven. So, uh, I mean, he's employing so many fallacies right here. This is part for the whole fallacy. This is um, the excluded middle fallacy. Like, there couldn't be a third option here. Like, he just assumes that the only option here is true femininity, which is apparently defending those you love. And uh, apparently, he thinks masculinity is w- is to win a debate and to air bitterness in public and settle old scores. Just a muddled piece. I feel like I don't even feel like he makes his point very well. And he's impl- that's just a fallacy argument right there. That that's the only two options you have on the table. And uh, yeah, and it's it's kind of like you said. I think um, we just we love trying to. Get things down to either/or's, and uh, you know, at least do something like Myers Briggs, where you've got 16 options on the table as far as personalities go, as opposed to just two. And I mean, in in our own family, um, like you said, my wife happens to be the better accountant, the better logic. I'm the more emotional person. I talk more generally. Um, So yeah i i think i I cry more, you know like i mean does that make me a girly man like what i mean there's so many things that are kind of uh, built into this assumptions that are built into this uh this piece that about what it means to be male or female like, yeah I think it's kind of reductive.
0: Reductive is definitely the first word I would go to. uh, to Well, the first uh, word I would go to that will not earn this podcast the explicit tag, so we're just going to stay there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I he's reductive and he's reductive to a lot of people. Um, he, he paints a very narrow vision of what it means to be a homeschooled girl or woman. Um, he also paints a very narrow vision of what it means to be a feminist. Uh, we're going to link in addition to linking to Marcos's piece, we're going to link to a really excellent response to it, um, by Libby Ann, who is one of my favorite, um, she's a, a former, um, She was raised in the CPQF community, which for the uninitiated means uh, Christian patriarchy slash quiverful. Um, The the quiverful ideology being that um, as a Christian woman, it's your job to basically have as many babies as possible uh, for God. It's a very kind of culture war driven ideology. Um, And there's a lot of links between the quiverful philosophy and the Christian homeschooling movement. So Libby Ann blogs at Love Joy Feminism, and her response to Marcos is titled, Sorry, gentlemen, this homeschooled girl's a feminist. And she does a really great job um, responding to marcus's reductions both of homeschooling which she says you're not talking about homeschooled women you're talking about a very specific subset of conservative christian homeschooled women and um of feminism she talked about him saying that feminists as a whole all of them um flee their femininity and and says that that's not true um you know she says, "I actually think Louis is making a mistake in assuming that all feminists everywhere flee their femininity. I don't think this is true while many feminists are queer or prefer an androgynous look and effect or just don't like gender boxes. Plenty enjoy being feminine." But then, I think the problem here may be one of definitions. Lewis seems to think that the true essence of being female is exhibiting innocence, being shy, demure, and untainted by the world. He seems unaware that femaleness can be something very different entirely that it can also be fierce and independent and worldly. The fact that we do not exhibit our femaleness in the way that Louis wants us to does not mean that we do not have a firm and rooted sense of ourselves as female members of the human race, as he suggests. Uh, I think she's dead on there. I would also add that there are specific feminisms that speak to this, that speak to innate femininity and why it's important to own and reclaim Um, Those sort of uh, things that are feminized negatively, um, emotion, uh, lack of logic, these things that you guys were talking about, I mean, read Luce Irigaray, read Helene Sixou, read the French feminists who talk about why there's power in this sort of, in female madness, in hysteria, in these sort of negative emotional stereotypes. So, yeah, I, I really just think that that he's being reductive to lots and lots of groups of people. In addition, I think, to being just kind of a bad reader. I mean, he's an English PhD. Yes! Yeah, I am almost an English <laughs> PhD. Um, I, I don't know what Jane Austen he's reading, or what Merchant of Venice he's reading, but they're not the same ones <laughs> that I'm reading.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think that... Uh, that i should talk very much about that because like sheila i don't think i can be very articulate about it except to just say like no 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 <laughs> so uh, maybe we should uh wrap up this discussion and go to our passing on segment what do you say
1: okay i really want to talk about lizzie bennett but that's fine <laughs>
0: Uh, So now is the part of the program where we pass on recommendations of uh, art, text, culture that we think you should check out. And I would like to recommend uh, Ford's web series, American Indian, in which he explores uh, his family's life living in India. Ford, can you tell us a little bit more about this series and your goals with it?
2: Yes, so we started doing just like weekly updates before we came over to India in 2011, and over time, people we were doing them as one-minute updates, and over time, people were like, oh, we want more, so I started doing uh, kind of like a outtakes every week, just in was basic, like, I, they called them life cast vlogs, which is just showing whatever is going on. And, um, I always thought them extremely banal, but people kind of liked them, because, you know, we're in another culture or whatever. So, um, but I just didn't keep up with it very well. So finally, we kind of resurrected this show in 2012 and started doing them just intermittently. Um, then at the end of the year, I actually beginning of 2013, this uh, coffee shop uh, place in Delhi approached me and, and said that they were wondering if they could show some of my videos or maybe if I wanted to show a film. So I was like, hmm, Okay. So I basically just went back through my catalog of videos from 2013 and, and cut together a feature film. I was expecting it to be a short film, but it ended up being a feature film. had a lot of extra footage, and so I just threw it all in one thing. And it basically, it was just kind of like a catalog of our year, and I put it on the web, and so I basically used that kind of to launch this web series, and the goal of the web series now is, uh, you know, we, we've seen, we watched House of Cards, and we watched the rest of Development on Netflix, and it was just kind of a revelation for me. I was like, wow, you know, they were able to do a much smaller budget and just go directly to the web, and this is viable now, I and mean, this is starting to happen. And I've watched some, you know, food shows and travel shows, I'm like, you know, I can do that. I can't make it look as well-produced as that, but I really think I can find a narrative line that keeps people watching for half an hour. So our goal is to really graduate this show. Uh, We're kind of fundraising it on a uh, Kickstarter-type website for web series, specifically for web series called Patreon. And uh, our goal is to reach a certain funding level and really then we'll stop production. We're doing it every week in 2014. But once we hit a certain funding goal, we'll stop production and say, "Okay, now we're really going to pour into each of these episodes and make, you know, a season of season two. We'll make that like uh, our quality season of 30-minute episodes, where our goal is to be every bit as good as anything you'd see on the Travel Channel. And, uh, and with the budget, you know, that we're shooting for, it's not much by TV standards, but uh, I think we really can. I think we can really make it work, so we want to try to be able to get it on Netflix and in the meantime it's a little less polished because you know I'm only one guy and uh, I can only do so much production but um, and it's once a week so uh, but so so far the response has been pretty good.
0: I have definitely enjoyed what I have seen so far and we will link to that in our show notes so that our listeners can uh, check it out as well. What's your recommendation for us, Ford?
2: so uh i got three i'll just fly through real quick um we've been watching the west wing i'm catching up on that never seen the west wing so uh getting back into that and yeah i think i just like the way that they portray uh politics and also i think there's some interesting gender things going on there there's uh a lot of uh it makes me think about certain things I just I wouldn't have thought about otherwise. I, it's it's kind of like I think of The Wire as the ugly truth and House of Cards as the bad. Like this is the worst that it can get. And The West Wing is kind of like good. You know, this, this there is some kind of hope in this whole crazy mess uh, that we have today politically and socially. So it's it's a kind of like uh, one of the few positive Things talking about politics and and arts, so I like that. I just read this book called *The Way of Kings* by uh, Brandon Sanderson. Uh, It's a fantasy book, and the book definitely, if it were to be adapted into film, would pass the Bechdel test. There's uh, just there's a really interesting. She's not quite the protagonist, but um, her she she has a very prominent place in the book. And this uh, woman that she's interning with. Their, their relationship really interesting. I think um, there's a lot of cool stuff in that book. I, I liked it a lot. I think it's written. I think the guy must be Mormon. There's something about like Mormons writing sci-fi and fantasy where I feel like they just do a really good job of it. And uh, he gets he gets something. I don't know. I mean, it's one of the better. I feel like Game of Thrones was just a little too uh, gratuitous at times. And I feel like he kind of finds a little more third path between that. So i I really like way of Kings. Um, and I think that's it.
1: Thanks Sheila. Um, because it's pretty much the opposite of the article we read for today, I'm recommending a longer book than I usually do. It's by Nicole Baker Fulgham. Um, and it's called educating all God's children, what Christians can and should do to improve public education for low income kids. Um, A little bit of background: Baker Fulgham worked as a teacher in LA, and then went on to start the Expectations Project, which is an interfaith but largely Christian organization working to mobilize communities of faith into public education with concrete action steps in three different areas: one, to make all people aware of gaps in the system, um, most notably the achievement gap, but other institutionalized issues; two, to work to close those gaps; and three, to advocate for all children in public education. Um, it's a quick and easy read. It's filled with her personal, personal anecdotes about um, teaching and her work with other people of faith and, and changing education systems um, and about kids' lives. It's a, it's a great book for a book club or a Sunday school class if you're looking to do something, you know, um, Christian humanists might have some issue with this, but social justice <laughs> it's a It's a really great book. Um, to get read and and to get active in public education, if you're so inclined, that sounds really
0: interesting. Uh, another title for me to add to the ever growing list of things I want to read if I'm ever done with this dissertation.
1: <laughs> this one honestly would be a bit of light reading mixed in there if you needed it. So <laughs> it's it, it really is. I um I was kind of dreading it. My my dad actually recommended it his men's group was reading reading it and thought I would enjoy it. Um and This is bizarre, but I generally don't like books about education um, because people usually miss stuff and she didn't miss a whole lot. I think she did a really great job covering the potential pitfalls of communities of faith, especially, um, you know, churches and and places of worship who have to come into a community to, quote, do good work there. Um, She talked at a decent length about how that could be problematic and ways to be humble and um, to serve appropriately. So I was very impressed.
0: Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes from this or previous episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. For Sheila Woodruff and Ford Sues, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in two weeks for our discussion of the evangelical adoption movement. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.